Welcome to the Reason to Hope podcast. In this podcast, we explore the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith. We seek to show how the central hope found in Jesus Christ is not only rational, but that the Christian worldview makes sense of our experience, our deepest longings, and our intuitions about the world. Thanks for listening, and we hope today's episode is both encouraging and challenging to you, whether you are a believer or a skeptic. Welcome to the Reason Hope Podcast. Thank you very much for joining me for today's episode as we consider the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith and ask some of the most important questions that that we can think about as human beings. And today we're going to be continuing a series that we've been in on the existence of God and the kinds of evidence and arguments that there are to uh, support belief in God, that, that point towards belief in God instead of towards an alternative worldview uh, like atheism or pantheism, uh, which is what many of the Eastern religions uh, are based on. Uh, Before I get to the argument today that we're going to be looking at, I just want to say that if you enjoy this podcast, if you benefit from it, please tell other people about it, that you know, your friends, your family. Please give this podcast a a five-star review wherever you're listening to it from. Those kinds of things just help other people uh, become familiar with it, and um, it it helps more people find the show, and uh, I would really appreciate that, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen today. Um, As well, if you have any questions or comments you'd like to share, uh, reasonhopepodcast at gmail.com is the uh, email address that you can reach me at, uh, as well as there's a website, reasonhopepodcast.com. So today, we're going to be looking at another argument for the existence of God, and this is a less well-known argument for God's existence. Some of the other arguments that we have considered, uh, like the argument from design, or the moral argument, or the cosmological argument, these are traditional arguments for the existence of God that many people are already somewhat familiar with, at least on a basic level. But this argument today that we're going to be looking at is the argument from beauty, and it's less well-known. But before we get into the particulars of that argument, I just want to share some general points about it uh, so that we can kind of have a good overview of what we're going to be discussing. So some general points about the argument from beauty. Uh, what What is this argument, and what is it trying to accomplish, and uh, how, how should we just think about it from a 30,000-foot uh, view? Well, the argument from beauty is similar to the argument from desire. So in a previous episode, I talked about the argument from desire and how this craving for transcendence Uh, that human beings have is a pointer, a powerful pointer, towards something transcendent, which God would fit in that category. And so the argument from desire is referring to an experience that we have as human beings where we we encounter uh, this this craving for something more that we have. And and so uh, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, definitely go back and, uh, and check it out. Uh, But the argument from beauty is similar 
to the argument from desire and that it is appealing to a kind of existential experience that we have. It's, it's an experience that human beings have. Um, it sort of goes beyond merely the rational. It is an experience. It's something that we encounter in the world. And so the argument from beauty is going to refer to a kind of experience like this. However, it is also, the argument from beauty is also similar to the cosmological and design arguments. Now, those arguments are appealing to some external feature of the world. Um, the cosmological argument is saying that the universe requires a sufficient explanation for its existence. We can see that it came into existence uh, at a point in the past, so we need a sufficient explanation for that. The design argument says that there is design, detectable design in the universe, uh, not only on a macro level with the fine-tuning of the universe, but also on the biological level, at the micro level. We see information uh, that is at the base of biological life. And so those are external features. We are looking at the world, and we can pick out things that require an explanation. Now, the argument from beauty is similar to these arguments because it also is pointing to a kind of external feature of reality, something called beauty. So beauty is a feature of the world that we live in. It requires a sufficient explanation for why it is there and what it is in the first place. So I, I, I say that, I qualify the argument from beauty this way because it is both an external argument it's pointing to something in the world. It's also an internal argument in the sense that it refers to an experience. We encounter beauty in the world. So those are important points to get. Now, like the other arguments that we have considered, the argument from beauty is uh, framed as an inference to the best explanation type argument. This is just abductive reasoning. We use it all the time. I've, I've discussed this in previous episodes. It's just it's looking at some phenomena in the world and saying what best explains the existence of this feature of reality. So the argument from beauty is another argument that is a best explanation type argument. It's saying that God, as the transcendent source of beauty, best explains the beauty we see in the world. Now, part of this, um, some, some people have characterized the argument from beauty as a kind of design argument. So some have suggested that we see aesthetic design in the world, that we see things that are beautiful, when we recognize that things are beautiful, we have this sort of aesthetic sense about us where we can detect aesthetic design in the world, which is an interesting way to compare it to the, the design argument that I just discussed. Now, another interesting uh, general point about this argument is that it is similar to the moral argument as well. And uh, if you haven't listen to the episode on the moral argument, definitely go back and do that. But in that episode, I, I talked about how a key feature of the moral argument for God's existence is that it is appealing to this moral sense that we have uh, about moral values. So we, we know that certain things are right or wrong, or at least we have a sense that they are. Now, whether or not that is uh, just an expression of our uh, opinion or preferences or whether that is something that is actually objective, well, that's what the moral argument gets into. But the point here is that when you think about that moral sense, um, we are 
able to connect rationally so our minds, we can think about things that are right and wrong. It makes sense that certain things are right or wrong, and we have reasons for that. We also connect existentially to moral values. When uh, someone does a crime, when when a rape happens or a murder happens or there is uh, dishonesty in business or something like that, we have a uh, moral revulsion to those things. And so we react existentially to moral values that we may or may not hold. So the moral argument says that those values are transcendent. Moral values are not something that is just the product of human culture or human creation of some sort or of biology. Moral values are transcendent. They require a transcendent source and explanation. Now, the argument from beauty is going to say in a similar fashion that Uh, We have an aesthetic sense, so that's comparable to the moral sense that we have. We have an aesthetic sense by which we can connect both rationally with our minds and existentially in terms of an experience with uh, aesthetic values, with beauty in the world. And these kinds of values, aesthetic values, uh, beauty itself is something transcendent. So... In those ways, it's, it's important to see how this argument from beauty is similar in a lot of ways to the other arguments for God's existence that we have considered. Now, if we get into the general structure of the argument from beauty, it's always important when you're thinking through uh, an argument like this, you want to be able to get your head around the basic structure of it. And so this comes from philosopher Doug Grotheis. Um, he, he structures the argument this way. It's, it's sort of in five uh, premises or steps. So it says that objective beauty is found in various forms in both creation and culture. God, or monotheism at the very least, explains the existence of beauty by viewing God as the ultimate artist. Therefore, the existence of God gives the best explanation of this beauty. So notice, just in the first three steps of the argument, he says objective beauty is found in various forms in both creation and culture. Okay, so we're saying that beauty, whatever it is, is not something that is just a mere human creation. It's, it's not just something that is subjective, that is a product of people's minds or their preferences alone. It's something like gravity in the world. Gravity is something objective. It's a part of reality. Well, according to the argument from beauty, beauty is the same way. It's objective. And we can find this in, in various forms throughout the world that we live in. And it says that God explains the existence of beauty. So in some way, it's claiming God is the, uh, the grounding and the source for the beauty that we observe in the world. God is a kind of He's the ultimate artist. He's responsible for the beauty in the world. Um, And so, therefore, the existence of God gives the best explanation for the beauty that we see. Now, Grotheis goes further, and he says, Christianity adds some unique elements to the discussion of beauty. So, Christian theism um, adds a dimension of beauty principally through two things. One, it's worldview, so kind of the overall picture of reality that it gives— and two, the incarnation, which is God himself taking on a human nature, taking on human flesh, and coming into the world that he made, walking amongst us. And, of, of course, um, 
That's the life and ministry of Jesus. And Jesus dies and he rises again on the third day. So there's the claim here that Christianity, because of its uniqueness, adds to the beauty in the world when we step back and we consider um, what it's saying about reality, what it's saying about God. And so Grotes concludes, therefore, Christian theism offers the best explanation for beauty. He's not just saying God, in kind of a generic monotheistic sense, explains beauty. He's saying Christian theism best explains it. So that is just the overall structure of the argument from beauty. It is one way that you can structure it, but but that's kind of the model that I'm going to be proceeding from throughout this episode. So um, now we just need to ask, well, what is beauty? We've talked about beauty. Many people kind of take for granted that they know what beauty is, but it's important to stop and think about what are we uh, referring to when we're talking about this thing called beauty. And I think it's helpful to maybe start off with a definition that is more philosophical, uh, but then to kind of clarify that with some examples. So um, I think it's fair to say that beauty is everywhere in our world. Our world is infused with beauty. Now, Dr. Ethan Brown um, is a scholar who offers this definition of beauty, and it is kind of philosophical, but I'll, I'll explain um, what he's getting at here, and hopefully the examples will make it a little more clear. But uh, Dr. Ethan Brown provides this definition of beauty. He says, beauty is, uh, quote, a combination of qualities and properties such as shape, color, and form that combine in such a way as to please the ex- the aesthetic senses, particularly the sense of sight, end quote. So when you are thinking about something that's beautiful, there are certain uh, properties or qualities about what you're witnessing that you connect with and describe as beautiful. So whether that's color, form, or shape, um, it is somehow pleasing to this aesthetic sense that we have as human beings. Viewing beauty is pleasing to us. And of course, um, it's not just viewing beauty with our eyes in many forms. It is hearing beauty as well. So just a general point, though, is that when you encounter something beautiful, it does result in a kind of pleasure to your aesthetic senses. And it can also create a sense of wonder and awe. So this is just to emphasize the, the key point again, that we as human beings, we have an aesthetic sense just as we have a moral sense. Now, what are some examples of beauty that we can use to kind of clarify this definition and, and the concept of beauty? Well, I think maybe one of the most obvious examples of beauty, and it's what I think of when someone mentions the term beauty, is natural beauty. Now, this could be uh, changing seasons. It could be the colors of fall that we look forward to. It could be the white snow of winter. It could be sunsets, majestic mountain mountain ranges covered in snow. Uh, it could be a clear blue sky, the ocean on a sunny day, or it could be stars and planets or anything in outer space that we observe. So natural beauty is a chief example of what we mean when we refer to beauty. People are drawn to certain things in the natural world. You know, you can't help but look at a beautiful sunset. People appreciate the changing seasons, the beautiful colors of fall, the white snow of winter. People want to go hiking in the mountains 
and they want to see pictures from the uh, the James Webb Space Telescope to see out into the universe. So natural beauty is a very obvious example of beauty. Uh, there's human beauty as well. Obviously, people uh, possess physical beauty. Humans also create beauty in various art forms. So music, painting, poetry, even novels and stories. The ability to craft a kind of story that uh, brings out uh, beauty in terms of the character development and the uh, the descriptions of the the worlds. Um, I'm thinking particularly of something like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings or C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. Music in so many genres, people are drawn to music and find uh, aesthetic pleasure in it and find uh, arguably a, a sense of the transcendent there. And the same, of course, can be said for works of art such as painting and poetry. So there is not only beauty in the natural world that we encounter. There is beauty that human beings uh, both have uh, physically, and there is beauty that human beings can create through art. Now, another category of beauty, and this is interesting because it connects with the moral argument, but there's ethical beauty. So when, when we observe something like self-sacrifice or forgiveness, these things have a beauty to them uh, that we, we have a sense that we know that those things are good and right. So many of the uh, superhero movies, uh, m- many of the greatest uh, stories contain these two things. They contain examples of forgiveness and examples of self-sacrifice. So this is something intuitively that we recognize is a good thing. Of course, it doesn't mean people always do those things when they have the opportunity, but laying down your life for someone else um, or for many others, uh, that's seen as an act of heroism. That's seen as a good thing. Forgiveness is seen as a right thing. So there's ethical beauty. So I, I just describe all those things to say that when you start thinking about what beauty is, it is very obvious that the world that we live in is full of it. And so that's why it's important to say, okay, if we're thinking about the question of God's existence, then whether or not there is a God, that is going to affect the kind of world that we live in. So if there is a world where a personal God exists, like the God of the Bible, that world is going to look very different than a world where there is no God. And so uh, we'll get into kind of what some other worldviews have to say about beauty. But beauty like this makes a lot of sense in a world where there is a God who is the source of beauty. But before we get into that, we need to ask just a couple more questions about beauty. So we've we've kind of defined what beauty is. We've looked at examples of what beauty is. But we need to ask, how do we really experience beauty? What, what happens when we experience beauty or encounter something beautiful? And I've kind of already said that um, I, I think that it is um, fair to say that we have an aesthetic sense just as we have a moral sense. So if we have an aesthetic sense through which we can recognize and appreciate beauty in the world, this means that we are encountering something real. 
So when we encounter something beautiful, when we are looking at a sunset, we are encountering something real that goes beyond just the physicality of what we're looking at. We are encountering something called beauty through this aesthetic sense that we have. Just as if when we witness a, uh, a morally heinous action um, or hear of one, we have a kind of revulsion against it. That's our moral sense, our moral intuition. So this, of course, raises the question of whether what we are encountering is subjective or is it objective? Is beauty in the eye of the beholder alone? Is it just a matter of personal preference? Or is it something that is um, objective, something that is what it is, um, apart from human preference and opinion? Very important question. Now, when we experience beauty, when we encounter something beautiful like a sunset, is this something that is irrational? In other words, is it something that is not kind of in the domain of rationality? Uh, I, I think that's an important question to ask, because if it's true, then this would seem to mean that you, you really can't look at beauty as evidence for uh, or against, in some way, the existence of God. Um, beauty has to, some way, we have to connect with beauty rationally in some way in order for it to function as part of an argument or evidence for God's existence. So um, some people have suggested that this kind of experience, witnessing a beautiful sunset, describing it as beautiful, admiring it, some have said that this is an irrational experience. But by this, they mean that the experience of beauty is not connected to our reason. So beauty is not something you can reason about. It's kind of on the other side of your brain. It's more of the uh, emotional, uh, creative, um, experiential side. It's not really on the rational side. But I think this is, I, I can understand why some people would think that, but it seems to me that this is mistaken. If beauty is something that is real and objective, and it's not just a projection of human thought, then we have the ability to connect to it rationally. And this is based on the idea that we have minds, rational minds, that can make meaningful connections to the features of the world in which we live. So when you are witnessing a beautiful sunset, uh, this is something that you are able to reflect on and reason about and ask questions about. It's not something that is totally outside the domain of your ability to rationally analyze it and think about it. It is more than that, but it's not less than that. To that point, you know, this of course means that when you're experiencing beauty, that this is not just a cognitive experience. It's not totally a, a rational exercise. When you encounter something beautiful, uh, your aesthetic senses are moved in some way. And you experience things like wonder and joy and awe and excitement and pleasure. And those are all good things. So the point with just asking that question, is beauty an irrational experience, is just to say that this kind of experience uh, coheres with reason, since beauty is something real, which exists, which I'll argue, it's not something that's totally in your mind, 
But it also, it moves us beyond the purely cognitive and analytical. So it's consistent with the idea that we as human beings are more than uh, thinking things. We're not just brains on a stick, as some have said. We have rational minds, but we also have um, our emotions, and we have our wills, and we have our desires. And so if beauty is something that is objective and it points towards God's existence— it would make sense that beauty would engage us on a rational level and an existential level. Uh, so that's really important. Now, we've, we've just kind of done an overview and clarified a lot of important general points before getting to uh, more of the specifics of the argument from beauty. So now we're going to move into that. So we're going to look at key features of this argument from beauty. And I've already mentioned one of them. One of the most important features of this argument is that it is claiming that beauty is something objective. A lot of people, when they think about the topic of beauty, they have the phrase in their mind, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And what that phrase is suggesting or is putting forward is that beauty is something totally subjective. If beauty is in the eye of the beholder, it means that um, the only the only existence that beauty has when someone is looking at something that they are describing as beautiful, like a beautiful sunset or planets in outer space or listening to music, it means that the beauty that they're claiming is just in their minds. It is not really something they're saying uh, about the piece of music or about the sunset, or about the planets in space. Those things aren't beautiful in and of themselves. It's when the person uh, encounters them, they just describe them as beautiful. But this description is purely a preference of the person saying it. So they're not really saying something about the object, about the sunset. They're just expressing their opinion. So that is a view uh, called aesthetic relativism. If you think about what moral relativism is, that's just the view that moral values are subjective. Well, if you apply that to aesthetics or to beauty, it means that um, aesthetic values are subjective. So um, while that is a kind of a popular, maybe an idea that is at least somewhat familiar to most people, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, I think that there are good reasons to reject the idea that beauty is subjective. So what are some reasons to think that beauty is objective and not subjective? Well, let's just take the view that beauty is subjective, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Where does this view lead? Well, I think if you're consistent with that view, then you have to accept the idea that beauty then would be meaningless. So if beauty is purely individual opinion, then when you say that something is beautiful, you are not saying anything real about the referent or the object that you're describing. It, it just expresses your personal preference. So if I'm looking at a sunset, or if I listen to a piece of music and I say, man, that is beautiful. I'm just expressing my emotions or my opinion about my experience that I had when I heard the song or when I looked at the sunset. But the sunset itself, 
I haven't said anything about it. The sunset itself is not beautiful. Uh, the song itself is not beautiful. Though on, on this view of beauty, if beauty is purely subjective, the term beauty doesn't really have any meaning other than your opinion. It's just, it's a label that you use to describe certain things, but it just is a label that expresses your personal opinion. It doesn't say anything about the object that you're describing. So that to me seems counterintuitive. It seems to me that when we're describing something as beautiful, we are saying something about the object. We're saying something about the sunset. We're saying something about the song that we heard. We're not merely expressing an individual opinion that has no real connection with what we're describing. So I think that's one reason that this view, that beauty is subjective, it makes the term beauty meaningless, ultimately. Now, another good reason to reject this idea that beauty is subjective is that it's inconsistent. It's inconsistent with how we treat other values that we hold. So, uh, again, if we compare kind of aesthetic values to moral values, um, we can use this example. If you look at the life of a serial criminal, this could be someone who is a serial killer or a serial um, robber or uh, a serial arsonist or what, whatever you want to put there, just someone who their whole life pretty much is consistent in committing certain crimes over and over and over again. They're in and out of jail. Maybe they end up with life in prison. So you take someone like that. Then you compare them to another person's life, a man who is a dedicated father. He's a dedicated husband. He's dedicated to his family, loves them sacrificially, um, is, there, is there for them, takes care of them, provides for them. So if you put those two lives side by side, can you really say that one is not better than the other? And certainly, I think that you definitely can. The, the, the obvious truth to that is that a life of a dedicated father and husband is far superior morally and aesthetically and just on so many levels compared to the life of a serial criminal. Uh, now, that's an extreme example, but it's just designed to bring out the point. We have a sense about these things. We are making a, uh, a moral value judgment on those two different kinds of lives. And so if we treat other value judgments like that as pointing to something objective, because we would say, yes, the life of a dedicated father is objectively better, is superior, is a life that you should want to have if you're a man, compared to a man who is a serial criminal. One is definitely better than the other. And that's not just an expression of opinion. That's a fact. It's an objective fact about life, about the world. So if we treat those kinds of value judgments as pointing to something objective, then why are value judgments of beauty the exception to this? Why would we say that one is objective, but when we turn to beauty, we would say, no, it's all in the eye of the beholder. There's not really anything here other than personal opinion. So this view, at, at the very least, is inconsistent. Uh, it's an inconsistent treatment of aesthetic values versus moral values. So that would be the second reason that I, that I would say that um, beauty is not subjective. It's actually objective. Now, the third reason here is that 
if beauty is purely subjective, if it is just in the eye of the beholder, then this means that you can't really have any real disagreements about judgments of beauty. This just follows logically from the idea that if beauty is just an expression of each person's individual opinion, then you can't really disagree about whether or not uh, a person's aesthetic judgment is right or wrong. So if you're observing a uh, beautiful mountain range and you have two people there and one is uh, exclaiming how beautiful the mountains are and they're, they're describing uh, why they think the mountains are so beautiful and then the other person disagrees and they think the mountains are not beautiful and they give reasons why they think the mountains are not beautiful. Well, if beauty is just an expression of individual opinion, then you can't really say that either of them are right or wrong. It's just they just disagree. They have different opinions about it. But it seems that there are actually real disagreements that we have about judgments of beauty. Um, when, when two people, if you take a work of art, for example, like a painting a sculpture maybe, or music, you can have people who disagree about it. And they are either going to assign value to the work of art, let's just say a painting, because they judge that painting to be beautiful uh, for certain reasons. Uh, so one person may assign value to it and say, yes, this painting is beautiful. Another person would not assign value to the painting because they judge it not to be beautiful. Now, like I mentioned with the mountain example, uh, these two people who disagree about the beauty or the value of a painting, they might be based on particular criteria. So if you're thinking about a painting, it could be uh, the colors that were used, it could be the material that the painting was done on, and how that kind of affects the finished product. It could be what the painting represents. Uh, maybe some values in the painting that are communicated. So there, there are particular criteria that are used when you're looking at something um, and describing it as beautiful. Now, unless you're an art critic or something like that, you're probably not going to be reflecting on criteria of why you would describe something as beautiful. But this, for most people, this is kind of something that just happens automatically. You know, you don't really have to think about it. Um, but the point here is that when you look at something and you have, you know, two or more people and one person says that's beautiful and the other person does not, um, they are basing that on certain criteria, certain, uh, a certain sense that they have about what would make it beautiful and give it value and what would take away from that and, uh, take away value from it. Maybe I'll use another example here. Now, this is a little bit extreme, again, but it's designed to make a point. So, what if a serial killer finds the sight of blood aesthetically pleasing in that context? So, what if someone has the idea that they, they, enjoy, um, they enjoy that, they enjoy the sight of that? Has this person made a correct aesthetic judgment? That may be something that they would describe as beautiful. But I think it's clear on many levels that a person who thinks that the sight of blood is aesthetically pleasing um, and they enjoy taking other people's lives, that they have a, uh, to make a, uh, a big understatement, they have a skewed sense 
of what is beautiful. And so they're incorrect about that. Uh, now, this kind of thing happens. And so whether it's something on the extreme end like that, or it's people disagreeing about um, whether a certain work of art is beautiful, or uh, maybe even a case of beauty in the natural world. I, I don't think there's as much disagreement about that. But th- this is just to show that if you're consistent with the idea that beauty is purely subjective and it's in the eye of the beholder, then you cannot have real disagreements about it. It would be like trying t- uh, to have a real disagreement about the best flavor of ice cream. Some person may think chocolate is the best. Other people may think vanilla is the best. And people can certainly disagree about that, but that is a disagreement that is merely a subjective opinion, and that's obvious. To disagree on what flavor of ice cream is the best um, is not an an objective kind of disagreement. It's just a difference of opinion. When it comes to beauty, though, people seem to have the ability to have real disagreements about this that go beyond mere opinion. And I think that is significant. So in these ways, these three points, um, there's probably more that can be said about that. But I think those are good reasons to reject the idea that beauty is something purely subjective. So beauty is not totally in the eye of the beholder. Now, before moving on, I do want to clarify that this doesn't mean that there is not a subjective component to beauty. There are certain things that are beautiful, and you could just go back to works of art or to music, that some people may be in a better position to evaluate because they have a better understanding of uh, painting or they have a better understanding of music. And so there, there is a subjective side to beauty. As I said before, this is a real experience that we have. We encounter beauty in the world, and so there is a subjective side to it. I'm just saying now that that's not all beauty is, that we're encountering something real and it requires an explanation for what it is. So we've looked at some reasons to think that beauty is not completely subjective. What are some reasons to think beauty is objective? And I think uh, in addition to all the reasons that I already gave for rejecting a subjective view of beauty, we can explore a kind of thought experiment that a philosopher named G.E. Moore offers. Now, a thought experiment is just, uh, it's kind of what it sounds like. It's just uh, setting an idea before you to consider that helps to drive home a point that may be uh, that may be hard to grasp initially. So G.E. Moore gives this thought experiment. He says, quote, Let us imagine one world exceedingly beautiful. Imagine it as beautiful as you can. Put into it whatever on this earth you most admire. Mountains, rivers, the sea, trees, and sunsets, stars, and moon. Imagine all these combined in the most exquisite proportions so that no one thing jars against another, but each contributes to the beauty of the whole. And then imagine the ugliest world you can possibly conceive. Imagine it simply one heap of filth containing everything that is most disgusting to us for whatever reason, 
and the whole, as far as may be, without one redeeming feature. Such a pair of worlds we are entitled to compare. We are not entitled to imagine that any human being ever has, or ever, by any possibility, can live in either, can ever see and enjoy the beauty of the one, or hate the foulness of the other. Well, even so, supposing them quite apart from any possible contemplation by human beings, still, is it irrational to hold that it is better that the beautiful world should exist than the one which is ugly? Would it not be well in any case to do what we could to produce it rather than the other? Certainly, I cannot help but thinking that it would. End quote. So, Moore's point there, he's basically just saying, imagine the most beautiful world that you could and put into it everything that you find most beautiful. And then imagine the ugliest world that you possibly could and think about just the, the, the ugliest possible um, kind of existence in that world that you could and then compare the two. And he's saying that when we think about this, it's not that we could ever create uh, those extreme types of worlds uh, on our own or anything like that, but we have a sense for the kinds of things that are beautiful. We have a sense for the kinds of things that are ugly or heinous or the opposite of beautiful. And if we just fill these two imaginary worlds with both those opposite things, then it's obvious that it would be better to do what you could to produce the beautiful world to bring beauty into the world that we live in now than it is to bring uh, ugliness into the world. So if it was in our power to bring into either of those worlds, certainly it would be far superior to bring into existence the beautiful world. So if, if we recognize that it would be better to do what we can to bring a beautiful world into existence— or the, or the kinds of things contained in the beautiful world, than to bring the ugly world into existence. This reveals that we have a sense that beauty is objective, so that we're able to recognize this. And so this is just another point. It kind of drives home uh, the idea that if you, if, you, if you look at the idea that beauty is just in the eye of the beholder, that it is purely subjective, and there's significant problems with that view, doesn't fit with our experience of beauty, doesn't fit with the concept of beauty, doesn't fit with the examples of beauty that we know of. And then you have this thought experiment that kind of brings to the surface and helps us see that when we compare beauty and ugliness side by side, we can tell the difference between the two. And we recognize that beauty is a good, it is an aesthetic value that is good to bring into the world uh, as far as we're able and in whatever forms that we can. And that there is something um, valuable and right and good about beauty versus its opposite, and that we are able to tell the difference between the two, and that this is more than just um, human opinion or psychological creation or something of that sort. So these are kind of all reasons to think uh, arguably, that beauty is something objective. It is like gravity. It is like moral values. Moral values are objective. Beauty is objective. So that is a, I would think, one of the key features of the argument from beauty. It is taking the concept of beauty and saying, this is either something 
that is subjective, a product of human beings, or it is a feature of the world that we live in and that we encounter and that we have an ability to sense and to make judgments about. And so the argument from beauty says it is something objective. If it's something objective, it requires an explanation that is sufficient and adequate to explain it. Now, the second feature uh, of the argument would be that there is a kind of connection between God and objective beauty. So if you've established that beauty is objective, then the next step is to say that God best explains it, that there is some sort of connection between beauty and God. So as I said, if beauty is objective, this is a massive point. Uh, because it means it requires a source that is adequate to explain it and to ground it. So objective beauty would be transcendent beauty, since it is not merely a product of human minds. Um, When I say transcendent, I just mean it's something that is beyond the natural world. It is something that we encounter in the world, but it's not uh, fully explainable by the physical elements of the world. It is transcendent. So, uh, this would mean that, uh, that if there is a connection between God and beauty, then beauty flows from and is grounded in God as a transcendent personal being who is good and beautiful in his very nature. And so the existence of objective beauty would make sense in a world where a God like this, a personal being who is good and beautiful in his nature, has created it and filled it with beauty for us to encounter, to admire, to enjoy. And it also makes sense that if human beings are made in God's image, as the Bible claims, then we have the ability to create beauty in various forms. So if God is the ultimate artist, like the argument from beauty is claiming, and if human beings are made in God's image, that we have certain capacities to reflect God, Uh, in the world that he's made, then this explains why we can create beauty, why we can produce it, why we can produce art, and why we have this creativity that is inherent in us, that we're creators. So that is really important, that there's a connection between God and objective beauty. Now, the, the, the third main feature of the argument from beauty is that objective beauty is not explained by naturalism or pantheism. So if if beauty is objective, if it is best explained by God, because there's this important connection that makes sense between God and objective beauty, then we have to say, okay, well, how have other worldviews tried to explain this phenomena, beauty, that we're talking about? Well, naturalism, of course, it has to explain beauty uh, as a purely physical phenomenon. Um, And as I've talked about before, when you learn how to think about worldviews, it's important to recognize kind of from the top down the implications that a worldview has for um, all the other things underneath it. So naturalism is a materialist worldview. It says that only the physical is real. And so if that's the case, beauty has to fit into that somehow. You have to reduce beauty to the physical. But a key problem with this is that it's really, uh, I don't think it's possible 
to reduce beauty to the physical. I, I think th- there's a lot of problems with that. And all you have to do to see this is to think about an experience of beauty. So I'll use the example of a sunset. You are uh, sitting there looking at a beautiful sunset. You could perfectly describe all the physical elements of that experience. So you could describe the atmospheric conditions that caused the light to appear in certain colors. You could describe in painstaking detail how the human eye receives light and how the brain interprets that light. So just go through all the physical descriptions down to the minutest detail, if, if you even had the ability to do that. This kind of a description of the physicality of that experience, um, a, a description of every last physical detail of the experience will not explain beauty. It will not tell you what beauty is. It will not get to the core of that experience. Just a completely physical description of all that does not explain what beauty is, does not explain uh, what you're encountering there, does not explain why you would describe it that way. The physical is certainly one layer of explanation to the world that we live in. But uh, beauty, as we're talking about, this requires a metaphysical explanation. If you can't reduce beauty to the physical, if you can't get at the experience and what it is that you're describing, if you can't offer a real explanation for beauty solely from the physical, that means it needs a metaphysical explanation. It requires a transcendent explanation. So I think that's a big problem is that you cannot reduce beauty to the physical, just in principle. Uh, but if we go further with this, some, uh, I, I would say probably most naturalists, of course, everybody's di- different individually who would claim naturalism, but I, I think it's fair to say that most naturalists are going to appeal to uh, biological evolution to explain beauty. Of course, if naturalism is true, and if there's no God, then evolution kind of becomes this grand narrative, this way to explain life and all the elements of life. And so you'll find naturalists again and again and again going back to evolution to explain things about the world. I've already talked about the attempt to explain morality from evolution. So naturalists go to evolution to explain morality, or at least many of them do. Many of them will go to evolution to try to explain beauty. But can this be done? What kind of explanation does uh, evolution on naturalism provide for beauty? Um, so one, one thinker, uh, Steven Pinker, who is a psychologist at Harvard, I believe, He works a lot in the field of evolutionary psychology, which is what it sounds like. Um, So thinkers like him, their approach to this question of beauty is to argue that beauty is uh, mainly tied to sexual reproduction. So the human sense of beauty would be wired for reproductive success. Um, So we have a sense for what is beautiful. We can identify beauty Uh, we can identify other people that we find attractive and beautiful. And the sole point of that is just so that we can reproduce. We can get our genes into the next generation. That is the evolutionary function 
of this aesthetic sense of beauty that we have. That is one way that some naturalists have offered an explanation for beauty. But this perspective, I think, is it's very mistaken, especially when you start to think about it. Um, I mean, the first point to make with this is that, as we've already talked about, beauty is a much wider category than sexual reproduction. Physical beauty of human beings is only one small aspect of beauty in the world that we experience. Uh, so it's a much wider category. We have experiences of natural beauty in the natural world. We have ethical beauty, this uh, moral sense that we have about things that are right and good, uh, artistic beauty. So these things have nothing at all to do with sexual reproduction. So to try to, to reduce beauty to this evolutionary explanation that is just rooted in sexual reproduction, which is rooted in passing your genes on to the next generation, is extremely reductionistic in a way that does not offer anything close to an adequate explanation for beauty. And I think even if you take this to the, the level of attraction, say, between a man and a woman that would fit uh, more closely into that realm of kind of evolution and sexual reproduction, uh, the, the romantic attraction between a man and a woman is far more than just physical. Um, that would be a very shallow level of attraction. I mean, certainly that's part of, that's part of it. But um, the beauty of whole persons in terms of their character, their interests, and their personality come into play as well. You know, this is what we would describe as falling in love with somebody. You know, maybe their physical attractiveness is what you notice first, but then you want to get to know them as a person. There's far more to people than just their physicality. They have uh, character, interest, personality, many other things. So even on the level of attraction between human beings, just to say that beauty is just solely about sexual reproduction and physical attraction is also extremely reductionistic and does not fit with um, our, our, our true experience of what, what love is between human beings. And of course, love is something that we would describe as beautiful. Love is another one of those, maybe you could put it in the category of ethical beauty. Love, uh, genuine love between two people is something that we recognize as uh, beautiful. So that is kind of a whole another topic as well, how you think about love and define it. But I think it's significant here uh, for beauty as well. So, um, I think another point about this explanation or trying to explain uh, beauty on the basis of biological evolution is that if beauty is a result of naturalistic evolution, then you face a similar problem to evolutionary accounts of morality and moral values. Again, um, if you haven't listened to the episode on morality, uh, I, I talk a lot about this in that episode, but I'm going to make a similar point here. And this is the idea that our sense of what is beautiful, that aesthetic sense that I've been talking about, this could have evolved to be completely different. There's a philosopher named Stephen Parrish, and I think he puts it helpfully here. So he says, quote, if the mutations 
of our ancestors had been a little different, we might think that piles of garbage were beautiful, while mountains, the Grand Canyon, and the Mona Lisa are not. End quote. So the point there is that if you are trying to explain beauty on a naturalistic worldview, on the, the process of biological evolution, beauty is a, a completely uh, physical thing. It is a, a completely psychological thing in human beings. It's something in our genes and in our heads. And if that's true, then had we evolved differently, if there'd been a change in our genes, um, we, we could very well easily think that piles of garbage were beautiful. And all the if, if you take the thought experiment that we discussed earlier with G.E. Moore, where he basically says, imagine these two different worlds. Imagine one exceedingly beautiful. Imagine the other as exceedingly ugly. Well, if this account, if this explanation for beauty on naturalism and evolution is true, then had we evolved a little bit differently, had there been a difference in our genes we might think the exact opposite about those worlds in that thought experiment. We might think that the ugly world was the beautiful world and that we should do everything that we could to bring that into existence versus the world that we would say now is beautiful. So the, the implication of this is that it guts our sense of beauty of any meaning whatsoever. If naturalism is true, if beauty is explained by evolution on this view, if that is the way people try to explain it, then you have to accept the idea that there really is no meaning in beauty whatsoever. Because we could have evolved to think, um, or we could have evolved an aesthetic sense that makes a completely opposite judgment to what we might make now. So if it's all a matter of biology, um, I said before on uh, the question of moral values and evolution, and I got this from Greg Kokel, but he has suggested that biology can't make anything bad. Biology can't make anything evil. If you try to explain morality through evolution, we could have evolved to think completely different things. Biology doesn't make things bad or evil. Biology doesn't make things good. In the same way, biology alone does not make anything beautiful. Genes don't make, don't don't result in this property of beauty alone. So the question here is not can we identify physical things in the world that we would say are beautiful? Of course we can. But the point is that if this thing called beauty is just a a product of the physical, then that could have been completely different. Um, if it's all a matter of biology and genes, then those things alone don't make anything beautiful. They just are. It's just physical stuff in the world. So I think the logical implication, if you accept naturalism, and if your explanation for beauty is that it's a product of evolution, then you end up with this problem. You end up with the same problem that you end up with uh, an evolutionary explanation of moral values. But in the end, even if someone does not, even if someone accepts naturalism and they do not attempt to explain beauty through evolution, then there's really only two explanations on naturalism that you can have for beauty. 
And the first is that beauty is purely subjective. And the second would be beauty is just there. It just exists as a brute fact. It's just here. We don't have a real explanation for it. It's just here. But we've seen that beauty is not purely subjective. So the first explanation is not adequate. And if you say that beauty is a brute fact, then this is basically to admit that you don't have an explanation for its existence at all. That you uh, that you've provided no explanation. And I think this goes against the principle of sufficient reason, which is just the idea that anything that we encounter in the world, we should have a meaningful and a sufficient explanation for it. This is similar to the idea um, that if we observe from cosmology, from scientific investigation of the uh, universe, that the universe came into existence at a finite time ago in the past from nothing, this requires a sufficient explanation for what caused this to happen. An explanation that makes perfect sense is that a personal being caused this to happen. A personal being created the universe, brought it into existence, just like Genesis says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Makes a lot of sense. It's a sufficient explanation when you get down to the details. It is a much better explanation than saying we don't know what happened and God's not a good explanation. Um, So here with beauty, if a naturalist wants to say beauty is just a brute fact of the world, we don't really have a real explanation for it. Um, Typically, the position there would be it is more rational to say that um, we don't have an explanation right now than it is to say that God is the explanation for beauty. That's the track that many naturalists are going to take with these different issues. But the problem with that is that it just rejects a explanation which should be on the table, which is legitimate. Many of the times, this just goes back to the old God of the gaps critique. Well, you can't just say God, God did it, God explains this, just because you don't know how this could happen from a naturalistic perspective. Uh, But that's not the argument. That's not the argument from design. It's not the argument from the origin of the universe, the cosmological argument. It's not the moral argument. It's not the argument from reason, like we've talked about. And it's certainly not the argument from beauty. We're not just throwing God up and saying, well, this we don't know how this could have happened on naturalism, so we're just going to say that God explains it. We have gone through steps to... Um, present evidence and reasons to think that God is a sufficient and a better explanation for beauty than the alternative, which one of the alternatives is naturalism. So just to say that beauty is a brute fact doesn't provide uh, an explanation, and it's against the principle of sufficient reason, which says that you need a sufficient explanation for, for things that, that exist in the world, for features of the world. So, therefore, the existence of beauty, it doesn't fit in a naturalistic worldview. And if naturalism were true, then we would not find the beauty that we do find in the world. And so, I think the existence of beauty is good reason to doubt naturalism and be open to theism. So, what about pantheism? Um, I keep going back to kind of theism, naturalism, and pantheism in these episodes because... 
that that encomp those three kind of worldviews encompass they they encompass the main options that there are uh, for explaining things in the world. So we've looked at um, kind of a theistic approach to beauty, how beauty connects with God's existence. We've looked at a naturalistic approach to beauty and how some have tried to explain it on the basis of naturalism. But if we look at pantheism, which is the worldview underlying most of the Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, and things like that, how does pantheism attempt to explain beauty? And I think in some ways there's not a real attempt to explain it. I think there's key elements of pantheism as a worldview which causes it to lack the resources to explain beauty on a fundamental level. If you think about this, on pantheism, there there is no distinction between the creation or the world and the creator. Now, th- this is a key uh, feature of a biblical view of the world, or at least a theistic view. You have a God of some sort who has created the world, and then you have the world itself. So is there, there's this duality. There's God and the world. But on pantheism, there is no duality like this. But you need duality in order for beauty to make sense. And duality is just the idea that there are distinct things in the world. So, for example, uh, you as a person are distinct from a beautiful sunset that you observe. There's two things there. There's you, the observer, and there is the sunset, something to observe. There's the external world. There's a distinction between those two things. That's what duality is. But pantheism teaches that everything is divine. So everything is one on this worldview. That idea of things being distinct, of duality, uh, pantheism teaches that that is actually an illusion. So that's something that you need to get away from and kind of get your, your mind out of that way of thinking about the world. It's a, it's a metaphysical view about the world. So um, if, if everything is divine in that sense, then all of reality is one thing. It's monistic is the philosophical term. So uh, if we go back to the example of you observing the sunset on pantheism, in reality, what's really going on is that there, there is no you as an individual observing the sunset as a separate object. You are actually one with everything because... Uh, the divine is the only thing that exists. So that has huge implications for beauty because it means that if there's no duality, then you're not really observing anything, that there isn't uh, something outside of yourself, beauty, that you can observe and reflect on and experience. And the other side to this is that if there's no personal God and if everything is just kind of one, if everything is divine, then there's no source to explain beauty on this worldview. An impersonal divine energy cannot be the source of aesthetic design in the world. So now we kind of go back to a similarity between the argument from beauty and the design argument. There is aesthetic design in the world that we encounter through our aesthetic senses. 
uh, we recognize that certain things align with beauty and certain things do not. If there's not a personal God who is the source of beauty, uh, who can put beauty into the world that he's made, who can, uh, this creativity and artistry flows from his nature as a personal agent, um, if you don't have that and God is just this impersonal divine energy, well, that, that cannot be the source of beauty. So those are just very top-level problems with trying to explain beauty on pantheism. And they're so significant, I think, that um, the existence of beauty also provides good reason to doubt pantheism and to be open to theism. So we've looked at um, the argument from beauty overall, and we, we, we have just looked at how some other worldviews attempt to explain beauty, naturalism and pantheism. So uh, if we just wrap up, um, the final kind of key feature of the argument from beauty is that Christian theism, and not just theism in general, uh, best explains beauty. Or at least this is how philosopher Doug Grotice uh, concludes the argument. You know, he's he, he's saying that, yes, beauty provides good evidence uh to be open to theism, but Christian theism, when you look at Christian theism in particular, not just maybe other forms of theism like Islam and Judaism, you see some unique things that contribute to this reality of beauty that would actually lend further support to Christian theism versus generic theism. Along this this line, some have suggested that uh, when you look at the narrative of the Bible and kind of the Christian worldview as a whole. You know, it starts with God creating the world and calling it good and and God creating human beings in his image, Adam and Eve. And then you have the fall where Adam and Eve disobey God and they fall into sin. And the the good world that God has made um, has become corrupted and it's under this curse because of Adam and Eve's disobedience that the relationship between God and his creation has been broken in a significant way um, that results in pain and suffering and evil and things like this. That's the fall. And then redemption is where God does something to make that right, even though he doesn't have to, that he works uh, through people that he chooses throughout this long uh, historical process. We can look through history of the nation of Israel, and then God himself steps into the world that he's made in the person of Jesus Christ, takes on a human nature, lives and does miracles, performs healings, points people to himself as the source of life and um, forgiveness for sins and reconciliation uh, with, with God, and then he dies self-sacrificially in humility for the sins of the world. And three days later, he steps out of the grave, having defeated sin and having defeated death for all those who put their trust in him, for all those who turn their hope and their trust away from themselves, who acknowledge their guilt and their sin before God, put their trust in Jesus. Then he makes them new from the inside out, makes them new creations so that now they love God and they live for him, and they are a part of his family and his kingdom. So that's redemption. And then glorification is when Jesus comes back and when he makes everything right, that he judges evil, um, he gets rid of evil, and he recreates um, the world that he's made to bring it back to the way it was, 
to where there's no more pain and suffering and evil and where God's people are with him for eternity in loving fellowship. So that is the basic storyline of the Bible. And some have suggested that when you step back and you look at this, there is a coherence and a cohesiveness to this. Everything fits together from the beginning to the end in a beautiful way, and that the Bible itself displays this kind of coherence in a way that seems to go against the idea that it's just a human product. And of course, that's a whole other topic that I'm not going to get into now, but this is just a general point that some people have offered, that when you look at the Bible storyline, everything fits together so nicely, makes sense. And so there's a kind of beauty in that, both logically and um, aesthetically, and um, it, it, that, that storyline fits with the uh, aesthetic and moral senses and uh, intuitions that we have. It makes sense of the world. And so some have suggested something along that line when they're thinking about uh, Christianity containing this beauty. Now, if you go deeper into that account uh, of the Bible just as a whole, there are virtues that we recognize as good and beautiful, especially in the life of Jesus and his ministry. So we see things um, in his teachings as well as in his actions, like self-sacrifice. Um, of course, the epitome of that is when he goes to the cross and dies in our place and then rises again on the third day for our sins. Um, he made him a new, who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Um, and then you have humility, that he took on a human nature when he didn't have to. He left the glory that he had uh, with the Father before the world was. Um, and, and he does this out of love for his Father and for uh, sinful human beings who did not love him. And then the forgiveness that's available through Jesus for all who will turn to him that we can be forgiven for our sins and reconciled back to him. And devotion, of course, that uh, there's this love and devotion that God has for uh, the people that he's made. So these are just some general considerations that some have offered to say that, you know, when we look at Christianity, we see a lot of beauty here. We see a lot of beauty in the account we see a lot of beauty in Jesus' life and ministry and just the Christian message overall. Of course, there is bad news that you have to understand first, that all of us have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed, and that apart from his mercy, we are under his wrath for our sins, but that there's forgiveness available uh, through Jesus for all who will turn from their sins, all who will turn from living for themselves and for and for the world, and for the things they know are wrong, and will turn back to, to God, put their trust in him, seek his forgiveness through Jesus. There is beauty in that, even though there's some elements of that that are hard for people to accept, and that can be offensive. The message of Christianity, it contains an offense to our, our pride, um, and to our own estimates of who we think we are. We, we think we're much better th than we are. We don't like to be told that we're sinful and that we've sinned against God and that we're deserving of his wrath. But um, it, it, it requires an honesty with yourself and a humility recognizing that you need God's forgiveness and that you have sinned against him. And so you have to understand the bad news before you can understand the good news. But um, this, this line of thinking is just saying overall, 
Christianity itself contains some unique elements of beauty that also uh, provide a further foundation to reflect upon beauty in general in the world. Um, And I think these points are significant. Now, just to conclude, so the argument from beauty, it, it tries to show that one aspect of reality, beauty, is transcendent, and it requires a transcendent explanation. So God would fit the category of a transcendent personal being who can explain beauty, who can explain the existence of it and its nature, and who can explain our experience of it. And this argument says that theism provides a better explanation for beauty than either naturalism or pantheism. And in particular, it says that Christian theism both displays and connects meaningfully to our sense of beauty. And so this is commending uh, Christianity, not just theism, as uh, a contender to offer a better explanation for beauty than other worldviews. Now, like all the arguments for God's existence that we've been considering in this series, this one argument from beauty, it doesn't offer some mathematical demonstration of the existence of God. It's not going to convince everybody who considers it in kind of a mathematical way, um, but it does help to show that the problems that other worldviews have in explaining beauty, and it shows why Christianity, or why theism in general at least, offers a better explanation for something that is so uh, pervasive throughout our world, beauty, than other worldviews can do. And in that way, I think, for those who are open to God's reality, for people who are sincerely wanting to know, is there good reason to believe in God? I think the presence and the experience of beauty, just reflecting on what this is, reflecting on what kind of explanation it would require, I think that this provides a powerful pointer to God's existence. And I think that's why it's significant. So in this series of arguments for God, we've been considering just a number of uh, key features of the world and building a case showing that God's existence best explains these key features of the world, from the origin of the universe to the design of it, uh, from consciousness, from our reason, from our uh, craving for transcendent desire, and beauty itself. And so this is a case overall that when you step back and when you consider it, uh, you see that there are good reasons to believe in God. There are good reasons to doubt the secular view of reality. There are good reasons to doubt atheism and naturalism. There are good reasons to doubt uh, pantheism and kind of a more Eastern view of the world. Even those, even if those religions and those perspectives may touch upon certain things that are that are true, um, overall the picture of reality that they offer is mistaken. So the argument from beauty is another thing to consider if if you are seriously considering the existence of God uh, and you're open to exploring the reasons, well, the argument from beauty is a compelling um, evidence for God. And if you are a Christian who is wanting to know um, what what sorts of reasons are there to uh, support my belief in God, well, the argument from beauty is an important part of that as well. 
So I hope this episode has given you um, some good things to think about wherever you're at and your beliefs. And I appreciate you taking the time to listen today. And remember that there is reason for hope in Jesus Christ. Thank you.